Well, good morning, church family, and uh, just so very grateful for our brothers and sisters from the Canaan Baptist Church and their leadership. And um, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're glad, just so glad to get to worship with you, and uh, glad you made it here, right? Weaving in and out through the neighborhood and the signs and... If you can figure out how to get here, we'll let you join for free. How about that? That's the deal. So, anyway. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, let me introduce myself to you. My full name is Randall Allen Boltinghouse. Um, I grew up in the right home with the right parents who sent me to the right school. I went to the right church with the right student ministry. Uh, and then I went off to the right college and I married the right girl. Amen. And I twisted every one of those right things into smug self-righteousness. And I distorted God's many good gifts to me and turned it into pride using my life as the basis of judging others. And it left me dead. Dead in pride, dead in hubris, dead in arrogance, and dead in self-exalting legalism as I proclaimed myself the emperor of a puny little kingdom of one. And my life changed because of two words. Two words changed my life. But God. But God. But God who is rich in mercy but God, because of his great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my sins, but God made me alive in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried for me. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And one day, he will come to judge the living and the dead. In him, I've been rescued. In him, I've been redeemed. In him, I've been adopted. In him, I've been forgiven. In him, I've been acquitted. In him, I've been washed. And in him, I'm being made more and more like him day by day day. And everything that I once counted as right, everything that made me feel superior, everything that made me feel proud, everything is now nothing because Christ is now my everything. And whatever I do that's right is in fact His righteousness working in and through me. And He who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it because He is faithful. Jesus is the beginning Jesus is the end, and Jesus is the means to the end. And just as God the Father sent God the Son, God the Son sent God the Spirit, and His Spirit lives in my life, encouraging me, comforting me, challenging me, pushing me, poking me to be more and more and more like Him. Who am I? I'm Randall Allen Boltinghouse, elect in Christ, forgiven in Christ, justified in Christ, washed in Christ, sanctified in Christ, sealed in Christ, heir of Christ, priest of Christ, slave of Christ. Randall Allen Boltinghouse. Amen. And if you are in Christ, then everything that I've said 
that's true of me is true of you. And that makes us one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And it does not matter where you were born. It does not matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter how light or dark the shade of your skin is. It doesn't matter the degrees on your wall or the lack thereof. It doesn't matter the language you speak. If you're in Christ and I am in Christ, then we are one in Christ. And that is gospel news, good news. And it means that your life matters. It means that your past, your hurts, your habits, your hang-ups no longer need to define you or haunt you or chain you. This church has been in existence uh, since 1973. I'm the fifth minister. But this gospel that I'm telling you about was proclaimed 2,000 years ago. It's not new. Listen, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's probably not true. The gospel is true. It's changed my life and the lives of millions and millions and millions and your lives as well. And this gospel, we're going to see it taking root and changing lives in the passage of Scripture that I want to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Matthew, uh, excuse me, Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. And we're in a we're just in a group Bible study here as a part of our worship time at Windsor Road. We just have a group Bible study. And today we are in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. It's on page 920 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of your own uh, to call God's Word, we would love to give you as a gift a church Bible that's in the pouch in front of you. Please receive it as a gift from this church family. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and we're going to see how the gospel goes to a cosmopolitan, very urban context. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Follow along with me as I read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, as you'll recall, Saul here is, is to be the Apostle Paul. And we read of his conversion earlier in the book of Acts. But Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus was his hometown. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius was an emperor. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. So what's significant here is that we're seeing Acts 1-8 in play. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the table of contents for the book of Acts. Acts 1-8, Jesus says to his disciples, But when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapters 1 through 7. The gospel has been going out in in Jerusalem and in the area of Judea. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel begins to take root in Samaria. Uh, There's Philip and the Samaritans north of Jerusalem. And then south, there's Philip and the Ethiopian. In Acts chapter 9, the most unlikely person comes to Christ on his way to persecuting those who followed Christ, Saul of Tarsus. And he turns to Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches the gospel to a Roman centurion, man by the name of Cornelius and his whole household. And it was just a phenomenal uh, family and friends conversion experience uh, in Acts chapter 10. Today, the gospel comes to Antioch. The famous city of Antioch. Now, where was Antioch? Let's take a look at this map here. So there's modern-day Turkey, you can see. Antioch is that red circle right there. So it's about, it's about, it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, There were 500,000 people in the first century city of Antioch. Now just, I mean, just think about that for just a minute in terms of an ancient city. That would be comparable to something like Chicago or Los Angeles. It was just, it was just huge. Uh, It was urban. It was uh, diverse. There were Romans. There were Greeks. There were Jews. There were Arabs. There were Persians. Um, Lou Wallace, who gave us the story Ben-Hur, situated that uh, violent chariot race in Antioch. Uh, There was a paved boulevard uh, running two miles north and south, flanked by a double colonnade of trees and fountains. Uh, It was stunning. I mean, I mean, one time, at one time, the entire street was, was made of marble. It's not quite as fancy as what we have out here at Windsor Road by any means, but nonetheless, it was just a stunning spectacle. Five miles from Antioch, was the famous temple of Daphne. It was a blatantly immoral place of pagan worship 
and temple prostitutes. But yet the gospel took root in Antioch and life change happened. Now what I want to do this morning as we're looking through these verses in Acts 11, I want to answer two questions. The first question is this, how did the gospel get to Antioch? How did the gospel take root in this famous city? How did the gospel get to Antioch? And then the second question is, how did the gospel grow in Antioch? How did the believers mature? And that's really, that's really what's going to help us in terms of practical application for our lives today. But let's tackle these two questions. How did the gospel get to Antioch? And how did the gospel, and how does the gospel grow in our lives well, how did the gospel get to Antioch? In a word, look at verse 19, persecution. Persecution. Verse 19 says that persecuted refugees from Jerusalem, believers, came to Antioch. Remember this Saul of Tarsus? He was ravaging the church. And he was creating chaos in Jerusalem, and so believers had to flee, and as they fled to the various cities and communities where they went, they shared the gospel. And Luke tells us that they shared the gospel first with those of, of their own people group, to the Hebrew people. You see, in Antioch, there were between 40 to 50,000 Hebrews. So Antioch had one of the largest Jewish communities in the empire. And so these refugees would go to the Jewish quarter and uh, their Hebrew brothers would ask them, well, you know, why are you here? And they would tell their story, the story of persecution, the story of hardship, the story of Jesus. Here's what I want you to get right from the beginning of this passage Sometimes your greatest hardship can be your best opportunity to talk about Jesus. What hardships have you been through? Health hardships, relationship hardships, job hardships, family hardships. That hardship that you think may be keeping you either from getting to know God or coming in a place like this or, or speaking for Christ, that hardship that you think may be keeping you is actually a hardship that God can use to share Christ. That's what we see happening here. But look also in verse 20. It's not only the Hebrew folk who are hearing about Jesus. Verse 20 says, Some of them... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so these are believers from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. The Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? Well, that word means Greek. They're Greek people. They're Greek folk. They're the Greek world, so they're not ethnically Jewish. So you see what's happening in gospel proclamation? The gospel has been going out to the Jewish community and then the Greek-speaking Jewish community and now to the Greek community. Some of the believers start telling their story and the story of Christ to the Greeks. And we really don't know who the names of these believers were. They're just anonymous 
uh, uh, believers in Christ, men and women, families. They weren't apostles. The apostles were not responsible for the, the, the flourishing of Christianity in Antioch. Uh, churches didn't spring up from Antioch because of a strategic church planting initiative in Jerusalem. That's just not what how it worked then, what happened was is that believers who experienced hardship came and they talked about their hardship and they talked about Jesus. And verse 20 says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. They were just, they were, and that doesn't mean that they brought in a portable pulpit like this. That means that they just talked about Jesus. Jesus. You see, Christianity is not a set of commands. Christianity is not a list of principles. Christianity is not even a way of doing worship on a Sunday. Christianity is the proclamation of an all-powerful living king. And verse 21 says, A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, what was it about the gospel that attracted Greeks from Antioch with no background in Judaism? Well, 2,000 years ago, had you walked down that glistening marble street in Antioch, and you would have asked an Antiochian, <laughs> do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Well... I mean, if you ask that question today, people will either say yes, no, or I don't know. But back then, if you would ask, do you believe in God? The answer off the top of people's uh, uh, just minds would be, which God? You see, back then, the gods were specific to maybe your tribe or your place of birth or your homeland. Antioch was this sophisticated urban city. It was a pluralistic city. But it wasn't integrated. You have your gods, and I have my gods, and, 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 and these gods take. They'll take your offering, they'll take your money. But for the first time, Antioch heard about the God who gave. Christianity is not about a taking God, but a giving God. And these Greeks heard the good news that faith is not about achieving. Faith is about believing. Faith is not about attaining. Faith is about taking from the hand of a benevolent king, receiving his work, receiving his sacrifice, receiving his service, receiving his love, and not for your personal tribe, but for all of the tribes, all of the nations, all of the languages. And so when these believer, believers gathered, all of them came from all ethnicities and places in life, slave, free, Greek, Arab, Jew, Roman, men, women, children, they came together to hear of this resurrected living king who gave his life as an offering for you. You see, the church gathered as a mixed assembly of difference. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, those were to be considered secondary identity markers. The primary identity marker in Christ, 
in Christ. And this was reflected in the leadership. Look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It's just on the very next page, page 921 of your church Bibles, where we're told, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then here they are. There's Barnabas. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But earlier in the book of Acts, we learned that he's a Levite um, from Cyprus. Levite was one of the tribes of Israel. So he's a, he's a Levite, so he's uh, Hebrew, but he, he didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in Cyprus, and so he's a Greek-speaking Jew, Barnabas. Then there's Simeon or Simon, who was called Niger. Niger means black, so, so uh, Simon was a black African. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, now, Cyrene was a Roman province in Libya, so that's northern Africa, and that was likely uh, uh, an Arab region. And then there's Menaean, who was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. And, uh, and he was a son of Herod the Great. So Menaean was of um, Hebrew royalty. And then there's Saul of Tarsus, who is a Hebrew Pharisee, a scholar, a rabbi, um, who is also a Roman citizen. So you see, the New Testament church, as we see in the book of Acts, uh, was a multinational, multi-ethnic body from the nations in submission to and belonging to one resurrected king. And in a world where forced diversity was imposed by Roman military power, there gathered a people who willingly and lovingly came together, consisting of multiple people groups. They came together because of their shared love of a self-sacrificing king. No one had ever seen this in the Roman world. And it was highly attractive. And the church just flourished and that's how the gospel got to Antioch. Through hardship, through this message, this powerful, life-altering message of a resurrected living king who came not to take, but to give, give, give. That's why uh, we read when Barnabas came to Jerusalem, he saw the grace of God. So he saw the giving of God, not the taking of God. And it was just a sight to behold. That's question number one. How did the gospel get to Antioch? Question number two is this. How does the gospel grow? How did the gospel grow in Antioch and thus in our lives as well? And the answer to that question is one word. And it's the word encouragement. Encouragement. So you see, word got back to Jerusalem about what God was doing in Antioch, and it became an opportunity for the apostles to show their support. So look at verse 22. It says that they sent Barnabas. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And that made sense because Barnabas was from that part of the world. Now, Barnabas' name means... Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And he lived out that name in these verses. 
Verse 23 says, He, that's Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now I want you to look at that word exhort in verse 23. Some of your translations have the word encourage, some comfort, uh, some uh, have the word warn, uh, exhort, encourage. It's like, well, make up your mind. Well, that's what's difficult because it's a layered word. Uh, let's break it down here. So the word encouragement comes uh, from a Greek word. The New Testament was written originally in Greek language. And the Greek word is the word parakaleo. Parakaleo. I want you to pronounce that. One, two, three. Parakaleo. One, two, three. Parakaleo. One more time. One, two, three. Parakaleo. Now you know Greek. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. What's that mean? That's a two-part word. Kaleo is a word which means to call. Kaleo, to call, and then para, you know, para ministry, para church, para um, medic, para alongside, para kaleo, to call alongside. So it's a strong, tender word. It's a challenging, comforting kind of word. It means, on the one hand, to point people toward a goal. This is where we're going. And it means to do so compassionately as you come alongside. So it's too strong of a word to communicate the idea that someone is just, you know, holding your hand. They're there now, sweetheart. Well, but it's too soft of a word to convey a whoosh, crack the whip style of leadership. Gospel encouragement is the compassionate and loving insistence on the truth. Gospel encouragement, the compassionate and loving insistence on the truth. Now, why is gospel encouragement so important? Well, you know, Christianity is not just about decisions tallied for Christ. It's about walking in Christ, growing in Christ, becoming more and more like Christ. And for that, you absolutely have to have this ministry of encouragement. And you cannot be encouraged just by yourself. You need to be in community. And so Barnabas shows up and he encourages these believers. And a great number of believers uh, uh, grew and they brought others to the Lord with them. So Barnabas gave them truth and love with compassion and Christianity flourished. And we need the soil of encouragement in our lives or we won't grow or flourish. We need people who are not so cowardly that they won't challenge us, and yet not so intense that they deflate us. And you know why, don't you? It's because we're just insecure. We want to feel special, and we want to be understood, and we, you know, we don't like, we don't like to be criticized. We, we want to justify ourselves. We, when we live in a university community, you know, it's a publisher parish community, and so we're looking for validation, and we always, you know, we want to explain ourselves, and, you know, I may not be bad, but, I, you know, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. 
or, you know, or, or, or well, well, you'd be like me too if you had my mother. I'm, we just are always trying to defend ourselves and, and we need encouragement. And so the big idea for today, what I want us to make sure we leave with, with is, is the big idea is just taken from Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day. That's that word. Parakaleo. Come alongside. Speaking love and compassion insistently. Encourage one another Day after day. We need it daily. Daily. If you're depending on this moment right here and now to encourage you for the week, you're going to get really spiritually thin and sick because you need food every day. You need air every day. You need encouragement every day. Every day. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Notice, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, the sin that is hurting you the most is the sin that you see the least. And we will never change unless we have someone in our lives who will come at us in love and in truth. And if it's all truth and no love, well, we'll just ignore it. But if it's all love and no truth, then we'll just use that as the status quo. Well, Barnabas shows up, and he just knows how to do this. And the result is life change. And there's no accident that verse 24 tells us how he's so good at this. Do you see that? For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, the only time that the word good is used in the book of Acts is in reference to Barnabas, who was full. He was a full man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. What I'm trying to say is that gospel encouragement is generated from the Holy Spirit. Which means that encouragement is not so much a management technique. Encouragement is not so much a, a behavioral technique to master. Rather, it's a spirit-empowered sensitivity to people and spirit-enabled faith in the God who is. So Christian encouragement, you know, is not... Merely a pep talk, it's way more than a pep talk. It's a word of hope to someone in need from someone who knows God. So you really can't in, be the encourager of gospel truth. It's not enough to know about God. You've got to know God. And Barnabas knew God. And so he was encouraging these believers, and they flourished, and this led to more believers, and that led to baptisms and spiritual conversations and prayers and preaching and teaching. And I mean, this thing is just 
growing and growing and Barnabas is laying awake at night. You know, he's so tired he can't sleep. And he's tired and exhausted and yet he's energized and, and he's like, how am I going to keep up with this? I need help. And that's when he thought of Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So Tarsus was not that far from the city of Antioch, uh, but Barnabas went to go get him. And Barnabas did not need to be in the spotlight so much that he couldn't share. And Paul, who had been in Tarsus, remember the last we saw of him was back in Acts chapter 9. And it's been 10 years since then. 10 years of growing and learning and serving. And he was just living life there in Tarsus. And as far as he knew, he was going to be there. But then Barnabas shows up and says, come with me. Come with me. And verse 26 says, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So listen, you may feel like your life is being lived in obscurity now. You have no idea two weeks from now, this afternoon, one hour from now. You have no idea when you get a phone call or you get a text or you get a message and a Barnabas is saying to you, come with me. We have work to do. In the meantime, you stay faithful, you stay true, you keep trusting Christ. You keep depending on Him. And listen, the best, your best in serving God is being ready. Just be ready. Just be ready. What if He never used it? You know what? That's His call. You're the tool. He's the master. Just be ready. And Paul was serving. And Paul was ready. And Barnabas showed up. And I mean, what a team. Meeting with the church, they taught a great many people. Large groups, small groups, individuals. And I mean, the church just flourished. And look at verse 26. It says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, they'd been called saints. They'd been called followers of the way. They'd been called disciples. They'd been called brothers and sisters. But they'd never been called Christianos. Christianos. It's a two-part word. The Greek word is a Christi, Christus. Christ. The Latin portion of that is Ianas, one who is possessed by, one who is possessed by Jesus, one who belongs to Jesus. And this was a name 
that was given to them by the community. It was not a self-designation. Question, if our community were to give us a name based on their observation of our lives, what would that name be? Here, Jews and Gentiles, Romans and Arabs had become so unified that a new name was needed to describe them. The most unifying distinction was that they were clearly followers of Christ, and they were clearly followers of Christ because they always talked about Christ. They talked and talked and talked and talked and talked about Christ. And their primary identity was a, being a people group who talked about Jesus. And these Greek Christians not only talked about Jesus, but they walked like Jesus. And that takes us to verses 27 through 30. Here, there's a famine that's about to come over Jerusalem. And Agabus, who's a prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And extra-biblical history tells us that there was a famine during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. And we're able to pinpoint this period of time to somewhere around A.D. 45 and 46. And so what happened was the disciples in verse 29 determined, notice what it says, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. This is a Greek church. They're racially, ethnically different, but they're family, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice it says that, so Agabus came and he predicted that the famine would come, but it hadn't come yet. So they gave, trusting this word from this prophet, we need to help uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea because it's going to be dry over the next few years. And they did so, sending it to the elders. Those were believers then who had grown to the point where they're taking spiritual oversight of their brothers and sisters in Christ in the Christian community. So you see, uh, there's just kind of been this leadership factory happening as well. The gospel is going to the Greek world, and they're coming to Christ, and, and they're being encouraged, and Saul and Barnabas are preaching and teaching, and, and then leaders from the church are emerging. So it's not dependent on a particular personality of uh, the ministers. Uh, church is growing the gospel is happening by means of encouragement. Encouragement. The gospel gets to Antioch through hardship. The gospel grows in Antioch through encouragement. Now, how do you give encouragement? I want to close our time by talking about how do we practically give gospel encouragement? Well, here's how not to. Gospel encouragement is not, you can do it. Gospel encouragement is not, you can do it, we can help. That's not gospel encouragement. 
Gospel, gospel encouragement is not, well, just keep trying. Gospel encouragement is not parroting, you know, the little engine that could. Come on, just keep saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Man, that is a steep hill. That is not going to happen, all right? That's not gospel encouragement. Gospel encouragement depends on two encouragers. Encourager number one, Jesus. Encourager number two, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the first encourager. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. The Apostle John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a paraclete, a parakaleo. We have an encourager. We have an advocate, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is your first advocate, and he speaks to the judgment seat, God the Father. Father, Randy believes me, trusts me, has received my life in his life. You have received my life as payment for Randy's sin. It would be unjust for you to receive two payments, Randy's life and my life. You've taken my life. Jesus is my advocate, but he's not just standing beside me. He is standing in my place, speaking to God the Father for me. So, so Jesus, my first advocate, my first encourager, speaks for me to the Father. That's encourager number one. But then in John's gospel, we read of the second encourager, the Holy Spirit. The night before Jesus died in the upper room, he told his disciples that he was going to leave them, but where he was going, they couldn't come, but that the other paraclete, the other encourager, God the Father would send. And this paraclete, this person, his ministry is about speaking for me to me. So Jesus speaks for me to the Father. The Holy Spirit speaks for me to me. And he says, Randy, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at his love. Look at his grace. Look at his sacrifice on the cross. Look at his power in being raised from the dead. Look at how righteous you are in him. Why are you so worried? Why are you so downcast? Ground your identity in Jesus, and you will be able to face the hardship, whatever may come at you. So to overcome love without truth or truth without love, you need the Holy Spirit encouraging you. And you have this second advocate talking to you about your first advocate saying, you know, Jesus, look, Jesus said, look, look at what he's done for you. The two most important advocates in the universe want you to be with God the Father who loves you enough that he sent them to you. <laughs> God wants you in his kingdom most. So encourage one another with that. That's gospel encouragement. So the encouragement is not, I think I can, I think I can, I think. The encouragement is, look what he did. Look what he's doing. Look what he will do. 
It's not, the gospel is not I can. The gospel is he can, he's able, he did, he will, he's faithful. That's encouraging news for me, brothers and sisters. And that's why encourage one another day after day. And I need that every day. Every day. And, you know, I, I need it in a text. I need it in an email. And I most appreciate it when it's when I'm looking at the pupils of someone else's eyes. Chandra, can the band come on up now? We're going to sing here. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. Here's how that looks. I want to teach you how to do that. So I've uh, been here for 28 years, and I've had spiritual conversations during those times. And I think one of the most common of those conversations is when someone says to me, you know, I would do this next spiritual step, come to church, take communion, get baptized, grow, et cetera, et cetera. I would do this, but I just don't feel worthy. I just don't feel worthy. And, and, and I've heard that. And, um, and if someone says that to you, that is, a, that is an opportunity for ministry. That's an opportunity for encouragement right there. Uh, but what you don't say when someone says to you, you know, I don't feel worthy. What you don't say is, you don't say, Oh, now they're there. Yeah, you are. Everything will be okay. Right? Okay? Because we're not gathered here because we're worthy, are we? <laughs> we're not going to take communion here a minute, in a minute because we're worthy. We don't baptize anybody here because we're worthy. I'm not preaching up here because I'm worthy. I mean, how would that sound if I said that? Well, the reason why I'm here preaching the gospel today is because I'm worthy. I mean, how does that sound to you? <laughs> Right? Just take your fingernails and go down a chalkboard. But yet I have that spiritual conversation often. And it's a moment of ministry. And so here's what I do. I say, brother, I said, let's just, you know what? May I share a word of encouragement with you? All right? And then I open the word to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's who's here today. That's who's here today. But God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. So the good news is not that we, when, when, when we're in God's kingdom, we're not, just, we're not just servants, we're not just hired hands, we're heirs. Heirs. And then Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. That's gospel encouragement. We're not worthy, but we worship one who is, who has called us to be worthy, and who gives us his worthness because of his great love and grace as heirs. Oh my goodness. That's fuel. Now use that. Encourage one another day by day as long as it's called today. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are gathered here not because of our righteousness, not because of our worthiness, but because of King Jesus. And we want to be called a people possessed by Christ. God, would you bring our church family together here? Remind us daily, over and over, that our primary identity, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. God, you are good and we love you. Thank you. And God's people said, 